Welcome to another episode of the Founder Fundamentals Podcast. My name is Rahul Kumar, and today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Harry Glazer, CMO and San Francisco GM of SciSense, the modern platform for analytics builders. SciSense delivers powerful data analytics tools to simplify complex data and deliver insights to everyone inside and outside their organizations. Harry was the co-founder and CEO of Periscope Data, which merged with SciSense this past May. Prior to founding Periscope Data, Harry was a product manager at Google and led product for the user experience of ads on the search results page. Thanks for joining us, Harry. It's great to be here, Rahul. Thank you for having me. So how do you react when you hear the term big data and what does that mean to you? <laughs> you know, big data had a really specific meaning when, it, when we first started talking about it. And it was about the movement from sort of relational databases to data lakes, to so totally unstructured data in data lakes. And then the Hadoop-based technologies that we were going to use to like analyze that data that was in data lakes. And that was like Cloudera and, and Hortonworks and that generation of companies. And now it has come to mean, you know, almost anybody working with data, if you have more than a couple thousand records, you have big data now, it seems. And then there's all this, you know, we've moved, we have our data lakes, but we've moved back from these Hadoop-based technologies to relational databases now that we have these you know, this new generation of cloud data warehouses and Redshift and Snowflake and, and those those kinds of technologies. And anything in this space has become big data. And that's okay. You know, it's it gives us a reference point and a starting point to talk about how we are managing this data and what value we're getting from this data. So when I speak with a lot of people today, uh, similar to what you said, you know, anything over a few thousand records is suddenly big data. You know, this conversation of AI and ML gets looped into there as well. And, you know, everyone wants to make sure that those strategies are actually in plane for their respective organization. So data is often referred to as the new gold. So after having worked with over 950 customers globally, what do you believe makes a great organizational data strategy? First of all, I love when we used to use that stat over 950 customers, because you know we had between 950 and 1,000, because if we had over 1,000, which we do now, we would have said over 1,000. It's fine. It's like a blast from the past. I remember writing that and thinking, well, everyone's going to know exactly what range of 50 customers. Anyway, proud to say we're over. It's like on the Periscope side, it was over 1,000, and now with at size sense it's over 2,000. Yeah, what have we learned about data is the new gold? Well, I think what, what we mean by that is that it is an asset that has intrinsic value. You can quiz economists all day long, like what about gold makes it have intrinsic value just that it's shiny or whatever. But in any event, the thing, because you have the data, that's a value that you have just intrinsically to the data itself that you don't otherwise have. And you can actually monetize that. And you can monetize that in a number of ways. A really dumb way is you could sell it to somebody, right? More interesting ways are you could leverage it to build more product features or something like that. Or you could build dashboards of the data into your product itself. That's a, a pretty common and a, a pretty interesting way. But the data itself has value. And if we were really sophisticated about economics, just like we look at okay, well, here's your profit and your growth rate. And then also we're just going to add up the amount of, of cash like gold that you have on your balance sheet and add that to your value. Maybe we want to look at the bytes of data and add that to your value. I, I don't think that's the worst idea. So one of the things that you just mentioned, which almost quote unquote is the dumb ways is literally just selling it. Yeah. What do you believe businesses get wrong in their approach to data? I actually don't think that many companies just straight up sell the data. There's all this, always this background noise conspiracy theory on the internet that that's what Facebook and Google are doing. And I've worked at one of those places and that's not what they're doing. They are monetizing the data, but they're doing it in a much, much more interesting and sophisticated way. I think probably the, the most common dumb thing I see people do with the data is just leave it there. You don't often see them just straight up deleting it, but you see that, which is, that's like burning your money. And then there's like, 
okay, well, it's in the log files, it's in the data lake, and we don't really know how to deal with it, and we don't really know what to do about it, so we're just going to leave it there. And we encounter a lot of companies that are at that phase of their life cycle. And then someone comes in or someone wakes up and they go, this thing has value and we don't know what to do about it. And that'll be usually when they call us. And we'll go, okay, let's make a plan and let's make a strategy and we'll deal with this. I'm curious to know your thought, you know, is it every piece of data inside a lake or inside within an organization actually valuable? So say, you know, starting off from something as simple as, you know, having your customers' names to addresses to phone numbers, how do you make that distinction between what is valuable and what is not? Or is all of it just valuable? I spent just the last 10 seconds while you were asking that question trying to think of data that's not valuable. I was going to say, I think some data is probably more valuable than others, and we can start there. That's probably true. But still, I mean, the dumbest thing that you can think of, an interaction log in your product, right? They click this button. That's valuable for future product planning. Or your addresses you mentioned. Well, we can market to those customers now that we know where they live. And like all of, all of that is value in different ways. And I don't know if I can think of a piece of data that has no value. There might be data that's strictly research value for now. So Harry, PMs are sometimes referred to as mini CEOs of a product. Pretty sure you've heard that you know, you know, time over. But how did your experience as a PM at Google shape you as an entrepreneur and the inception of Periscope data, or did it have no bearing at all on both? <laughs> yes, yeah, so it had bearing, that's for sure. I mean, I grew up at Google. Everybody, I think, you can talk to them about where they grew up in their career. Often it's the first or second job out of college, and they spent a few years there. That's kind of where they, like where home base is in terms of how they think about their work and approach their work. And for me, that was Google. I actually saw PMs there justify a lot of bad behavior by calling themselves the CEOs of the product. I, didn't necess I don't necessarily encourage that because I think it, it leads to this kind of arrogance and, and I don't know. Like a product team is a team and the engineering lead and the product lead and the marketing lead and the design lead all have roles to play in leading that team and in a really healthy team they're peers and they're collaborating on the direction. The coordination work often falls to the product manager and that's good. How did it inform the starting Periscope data is also interesting because there were, first of all, Periscope was based on really advanced data analysis technologies that Google had that I did not see out in the market. And we wanted to analyze data really rapidly, analyze lots of data really rapidly, and we didn't see a solution for that in the market, so we built one. And that's, that's on the product side, but then also a lot of the engineering culture and the engineering processes are based on Google. A lot of our approach to product development is cribbed from Google. On the flip side, Google, at least when I was there, did not need to work very hard to attract users and customers. You would write a post on the Google blog post and put it out there, and then you'd get like 20 or 30,000 signups based on that minimum. And then you could either rely on your product to grow that number or shrink that number, and if it grew, you were eventually going to be successful. And so we knew nothing at all about sales, marketing, anything, and we had to learn it all on the fly. And that was more painful than if we'd come from a place that had a real go to market that was sophisticated about getting customers and users because they didn't, it wasn't a solved problem in those organizations. So you mentioned while you're at Google, you know, you see these methodologies that you're using internally, but they're not actually out in the market commercialized at that point. So at what point did you actually know that Periscope data could be a viable business in itself and not just, you know, a solution or a product? I think it was a gradual realization. It's a good question. I think we got a couple customers and we were really high on that and we thought we were kings of the world and that was great. And then we started getting more customers and more customers and more customers. And for like maybe a year, all I was really focused on was making the thing grow. And so it was just, I got two customers last month. Can I get three customers this month? What about four? Oh shit, if I want to get 10, I'm going to have to hire a salesperson to do this with me. You know, and it was like that. 
And it, we got to be about 20 people, maybe three or four people in sales. And it was when we were raising the Series A that it became this forcing function to think about the future. And you're pitching the future to these investors. So now you're thinking, what kind of company could this be? How big could this be? What could the potential outcomes for this company, at least from a financial point of view, be? That, I think, was when we really started thinking, God, this could be big. Like, I don't see any limits on how big this could be. That's amazing. So rewinding a little bit back to, you know, gaining customers, how did you acquire your first customer? And what is your recommendation for other entrepreneurs who are starting out with only an idea or just some wireframes? The first two customers came from my network. Uh, and I think that's good. And I think actually one of the mistakes that first time founders make is that they're shy about asking their friends for favors and stuff. And we had to, uh, we were too, and we had to unlearn that painfully. But we would eventually have a network of folks that we would just call every time we had a new idea or every time we had a new thing we wanted to try. Most of the time they would ignore us or say no, or they would be polite and say, this is really cool, but then never try it again. And we got two real hits that led to real dollars from my network. And that was super rare and made us feel like we were onto something. Then we started doing a little bit of marketing and we did content marketing. We posted blog posts and one of them went viral, maybe mini viral, something like that, but it generated a few thousand sales leads. I spent three or four months calling them back. I mean, these are warm inbound sales leads. It's great, right? But I didn't know anything about sales. And so I think I blew all thousand of them learning to sell and maybe turned them into one customer, right? But eventually we did figure it out and we got to this cadence of posting blog posts, getting leads, and turning those leads into, into customers. And that was kind of the way we did it. And all the way through the merger with SciSense, it was primarily an inbound business. Now, the inbound lead generation got a lot more sophisticated, but it was primarily how we were doing it. Now, going back to the actual seed round itself, what was your pitch when raising your seed round in 2013? And has the business pivoted at all from what you imagined it to be at that point in time? Great question. It was much more around rapid one-off analysis. And Periscope ended up being a much more of a workflow tool for, or in addition to one-off analysis, which we do a ton of today, a workflow tool for entire data teams and the collaboration that happens between a data engineer who's integrating the data, a data scientist who's predicting the future, and a data analyst who's solving a problem or doing a historical analysis. And those people are all collaborating on one platform. It's kind of managed by the head of data. That all came later. I will also say, I don't know if, if the audience here is mostly soon to be entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs, but our seed pitch was terrible. And that's like, there was no, to the extent that we pitched anything at all, it was like an accident. And that's like normal. That's totally, totally normal. What are your thoughts on growth hacking and having a really good sales lead versus genuine product market fit in the business? So there's some ideology on the street that you want to be cautious of getting your first customers immediately because that could be attributed to just a great sales guy versus truly finding product market fit. I think those things are orthogonal. In a perfect world, I would have great product market fit and a great sales guy. So first of all, you have to have product market fit and you'll know when you have it. And like we went overnight, like one of those two first customers started using the product all day, every day. And that was like, that's product market fit, right? The guy like used the product more than Gmail. And that was amazing. I think at that point, just get more sales. And the market and the product will dictate to you the business model. And so it's not really up to you whether you're running a you know, high velocity inbound self sign up credit card kind of product or a product where a salesperson wearing business casual and, and carrying a wheelie bag around is like driving six, seven figure deals for you. That's just a question of who your buyer is and how they buy. But yeah, once you're there, just get more sales. And if it's if, if your sales are attributed to a great sales guy, like awesome, you know, I wouldn't stress. 
Do you have any business idols that you're particularly inspired by and whose ideology you tried to emulate when starting the business? I don't know that we emulated any. I read a lot and I love first person histories of businesses. This is one of my favorite genres of books. I don't know that we have emulated any individual person, but I really admire the independent thinkers who have thought it through for themselves. I would put Phil Knight at Nike in that bucket. I would put Jeff Bezos in that bucket. The guy, Alan Mulally, who took over Ford during the turnaround goes in that bucket for sure. I'm sure there's a few others. Yeah. Now, when you started the actual business, what did your competitive landscape look like? And what did you know you could do better than any other business that you were competing with at that point in time? I don't think that we thought, you know, that question is all set up to make me, it enables me to give this answer that sounds like we're geniuses and we had it all planned out and here's our unique insight and then we executed our plan and now we're rich. And none of that's true. Our unique insight was we really wanted to work together. So we did. And then we failed for a while. And then we happened on this idea that was successful. And then we sort of tried to catch up with it. And we made every mistake in the book along the way. The one thing that I think we did really well was hire a good team that mostly was able to ring fence and box in our bad ideas and execute well. And if I had one piece of advice, and this is obviously post product market fit advice, but like hiring really well is worth getting really good at. And it's very hard in San Francisco, but it also makes you great in San Francisco because you have to compete with the best. And Uber is right around the corner from our offices and offering twice what we offer for software engineers. And so getting good at competing in that market, it's a a skill that will last us the rest of our life. And so that's, uh, I think, valuable. You mentioned the word failure in the early innings of the actual business and building it. You know, I think a topic that isn't discussed enough is the actual emotional turmoil that entrepreneurs may go through. When you felt that, you know, you weren't succeeding or things just weren't up to the mark that you, you know, hoped that they would have been, what actually kept you going at the end of the day? Well, specifically at the end of the day, heavy drinking. <laughs> Sorry, just, just kidding. For me, it was my relationship with my co-founder. So we've known, now we've known each other 15 or 16 years at the time, maybe 10 years. And this is not always achievable, actionable advice, but I think if you can start a company with somebody you already deeply know and trust, and you've already, my threshold would be you've already had your first fight. And there's a pattern for how you fight about things and then resolve the fight and move forward because you don't want the first fight to be business ending. And then that just, you know, got us through, especially in the early days, but really they were all, they were, they're all hard days and they're all hard years, you know, having that relationship, that trust, that level of trust with the people you're building the business with is, I think, very helpful. So Periscope Data, technically complex project, engineering driven. In terms of building out the initial product itself, what was your approach to that process? Did you have a feature backlog with everything you wanted the solution to incorporate in the first pass? Or was it more of an iterative approach with limited functionality to begin with, almost like an MVP of sorts? Well, the, so the, yeah, so first we built the most prototypey prototype of the thing, and then we tried to get people to use it. And then once we had people using it, there was already this debt of like it was never really intended for people to use it every day because it was just a prototype that we could show off. So we had to get that do it going. And then we tried to talk. The, like we were terrified. We were terrified that, okay, he used it today. We were watching the logs. Actually, the very first thing that we would do is just have a screen up with the log lines because every time he would do something, click a button, whatever, there'd be a log line. And so I'm just staring at it, watching what he's doing and watching the logs scroll by. And then, of course, if he wasn't doing anything, there were no logs. And so it would just be this sad, like kind of flat screen. And we were really terrified, okay, he used it today. Is he going to come back tomorrow or not? And if a couple of days went by when he didn't come back, we'd send him an email. And like, we'd try to ask what he wanted, and then we'd build that right away. And we'd try to get another user sort of in parallel. And that worked for a while until there was too much to do for people requesting it that we could do everything. So we'd kind of prioritize by what would get us more people because we still wanted to grow the number of people. 
uh, the number of users. And that worked for a good long while. We probably had 10 customers before we got any more sophisticated around, okay, which requests will drive the most ARR? And this guy really seems like he's going to churn if we don't do it, so we're going to do it, and like that kind of thing. So how much of a product do you believe entrepreneurs need to actually build out prior to going and marketing to an actual customer? I think as little as possible. I mean, like, okay. whatever gets you that customer, that's it. I, like, again, it's you're just trying to grow your customer base or your user base or your revenue base. That's all we're doing here. And so whatever gets you there, gets you there. And I wouldn't, I definitely would not spend six months building before you go get customers. One thing that you just alluded to, which was interesting, was listening to your customers and kind of building out what their demand actually is. How much have you followed customer feedback to the T versus anticipating customer demands yourself based on the experience of selling into multiple accounts? Yeah, I mean, we do much more of the second thing now where we understand, we, you, you get a thousand customers and a hundred employees, everything's different, right? And so you, people are doing analysis on customer behavior, we're grouping the customers into different cohorts, we're understanding what each different cohort of customers wants, we're understanding that there's a whole group of customers that might churn unless we improve this feature, all that stuff. In the early days, it really was transcribing what they said, running back to the office and shipping it as fast as possible. That's all that we were doing, and I think that served us pretty well. Would you do that again in retrospect had you built out the business again from today? Yes, definitely. I think all this stuff that we're talking about, growth hacking and did your sales just come from a good salesperson, whatever, that's all nice to have. Just build the thing that your users want, and then your users will stick around. That's like, that's it. Yeah. So enterprise is one of the customer segments that many entrepreneurs hope to capture due to many facets of one which includes stable recurring cash flow. What insights have you learned about selling in enterprises that you'd like to share with others? I mean, it's very hard. It's, and I think this is something that we have, my learning on this has accelerated since merging the company with SciSense. And SciSense is very good at six-figure deals and large companies. And we have customers like NASDAQ and GE and Air Canada and enterprise customers. It is a whole company commitment. The product quality, by which we mean not having a lot of bugs, trying to have zero bugs, the set of features around enterprise-wide deployments, what does it really look like to manage tens of thousands of users? One thing I'll tell you about SciSense is most user management happens through the API, not the user management console. Makes sense, right? Integrations with all of the other enterprise sort of back office tools that you can expect to see. All those things that I just named are product. Then there's marketing. Then there's the sales approach, right? From the time you hire your first enterprise sales leader to the time you really start getting enterprise sales could be a year because it could be six or nine months through the sales cycle plus a quarter for that leader to hire up the team. Plus, let's hope you've been doing that product work and that marketing work in parallel. Um, so it is a whole company commitment. It's very, very hard, but it's absolutely achievable if you do it well and you make that commitment. One of the few industries that are listed on the site that you service, and I'd like to shine a spotlight on this one in particular for a few moments, is healthcare. So healthcare has traditionally been an industry where technological advancement has hit last given regulation, sensitivity, privacy, etc. And a lot of the insights that remain to be unlocked in healthcare do rest in leveraging data, be that genetic or patient history and then layering additional data on top. What are your thoughts on empowering patients with this data and how Periscope can potentially play a role in that? Because a lot of it remains locked away from patients and it blows my mind personally how much data we as individuals, we still don't have at our fingertips. Yeah. So curious to get your thoughts there. Well, I think where Periscope intersected this industry was in the sort of the disruptors in the industry. We have a number of sort of health tech disruptors, Oscar Health, Devoted Health, as customers and they are among other things, doing what you're talking about, empowering patients, giving them access to the data, using the data to make much more sophisticated and interesting healthcare and health insurance decisions. And so I think all that's really good. I think it's tough. I think it's, it's tough from a regulatory point of view, which is good news, right? 
working with healthcare data in general is really hard due to regulatory pressure, and I think that's good. We should like we couldn't have gotten any of those customers until we were HIPAA and high tech certified, and I think that's the right thing. And it starts with simply protecting the patient data before we're even leveraging the patient data. So that's good. And now in that environment to turn around and leverage the patient data is hard, but I think there are disruptors doing it. And I think those disruptors need access to good tools. And that's where Periscope Data and SciSense have an awesome role to play. Healthcare specifically, you know, two of the buzzwords that you hear, AI and ML. Yeah. In terms of the clients that you work with, do you believe all of them are already at the mark to be implementing those strategies? Or do you believe a lot of clients that you may work with or just industries that you see in general they still need to kind of fix up their actual data strategy in the first part and then work up to AI and ML strategies? I think every customer is on a journey. I think we think about this in terms of a, of a data maturity curve. And so, you know, maybe level zero is not using your data at all. And somewhere in the middle is having a pretty sophisticated analysis and business intelligence set up. And then Nirvana is using machine learning to predict the future and make your, all your decisions for you or something. We certainly have customers that are on the, on the bleeding edge of that maturity curve. I love a data team. I love the data team at Tinder. They're in LA, I think West Hollywood, and a gentleman named Chris leads that team and they're very sophisticated. Speaking of so SoCal, there's a data team at ZipRecruiter led by a woman named Maggie that is absolutely cutting edge in the way they use these technologies. They're great folks. They are in Santa Monica, on the beach, near the beach. But I think everyone's on a journey and for every one of those, there's someone that's just starting out and that's good too, you know? Actually starting out is a fun place to be. Sometimes I think Maggie at Zip would, at ZipRecruiter would love to be at the beginning of the journey because then she could plan everything out exactly as she wants to as opposed to having made mistakes along the way. And so that's all good news. And I think that's great. Is everyone in our customer base doing the most advanced stuff? No, but everyone wants to be and they're all getting there. What was the impetus behind merging the business with SciSense in May? You know, at what point did you realize that it was better off to merge the business as opposed to building off the proposed synergistic capabilities one-off? Yeah, so I have known Amir, the CEO of SciSense, for quite a while, but it really accelerated in December of last year, December of 2018. So I'd say from December through May, there was a concrete option and then a plan and then a you know something we're really doing. And I don't know if there was one moment where it was like, aha, this is the moment we've decided. But at Periscope, we had always been selling to these really advanced data teams at these cutting edge companies. And we knew we had to sort of cross the chasm and address large organizations and operationalize the insights that were being generated in Periscope out to many tens of thousands of users and maybe many tens of millions of, of our users' customers, right? And that requires a really sophisticated, advanced business intelligence platform. And that's a really, that's a builder buy decision for us, or, or I guess a builder sell decision. And um, we were fortunate to have the opportunity to merge with a market leader. I think merging with a company that is leading in this market of business intelligence was not, not something that was obviously going to be an option for us. But given that, it allows us to short circuit two or three years of product development and also two or three years of risk and dilution from a corporate point of view in order to get there and to wake up overnight, being able to operationalize those insights and being able to be a hundred million ARR company is awesome. And so we were fortunate to have that opportunity and it's been a, it's been a wild ride. While you were building the company, if there was one specific thing that shocked you, which you know completely <laughs> you didn't think of, what would that be? If you're already a leader or a manager starting a company, it may be different, but I'd spent a few years as a associate product manager and a product manager. Around 30 or 40 employees, you kind of have this revelation that as the CEO, the only thing that you do that has impact anymore is building and curating the team. Like individual decisions that you make 
have some small impact sometimes. Often they don't. Often they're mistakes. But if you get the team right, then the team goes on to do amazing things that you never had any idea. It's sales methodologies you've never heard of. Marketing campaigns that succeed beyond your wildest dreams. At Periscope Data, our support team was like the best in the industry. Still is. And... Um, I, you know, I had no idea how to build a best in the industry support team, but we hired a, an awesome leader for that team and, and she went and built it, built it. And that was terrific. And that impact of building the best team was and is an ongoing shock to me and is, is really rewarding and really impactful. When you started building the business, you know, you wear a lot of hats, probably involved in every decision possible. At what point did you notice yourself relinquishing control of actual decisions? Yeah. So I think around that time, and it's a tough moment, you know, and I'll, um, CEOs who try to keep their fingers in everything and try to keep control over every little decision typically fail and the failure can be ugly and board members have to step in and you, you don't want that, right? And it's a learning moment. And I think having a strong team around you includes having a team that will tell you, Harry, the screw up was you. And if you had let the team execute instead of trying to micromanage them, we would not have had this problem is a critical part of that. And if you don't have anyone surrounding you to tell you that you are likely to fail. If you were to offer three pieces of advice to new entrepreneurs, what would those three pieces of advice be? New entrepreneurs, trust your co-founder. Maybe you can flip that around, have a co-founder that you trust. Uh, you know, this is the most important one. Just get users and just get usage. It, like, if you have users and they log in once and don't come back, go find out why and fix it. Just get them using the product and then just get more users. And then yeah, hire the best team. That was Harry Glazer, CMO and San Francisco General Manager of SciSense and the co-founder of Periscope Data. Harry, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Rahul. Great to be here.